happy Friday. And it sure has been a busy one. It has been a bad day if your name is Donald Trump. Today, the January 6th committee issued a subpoena for the former president, and it is blistering, saying he, quote, personally orchestrated a multi-part effort to overthrow the 2020 election. We will be getting to that shortly. But first, do you remember this photo? What you're looking at is a highly sensitive satellite photo showing an explosion at an Iranian space center. This photo from an intelligence briefing was tweeted out to the world in August 2019 by none other than President Trump. The fact that he did so rattled intelligence officials, and it soon led to Internet sleuths being able to identify the U.S. spy satellite that took the photo. There's something about Iran that has always fascinated the former president. The New York Times reported earlier this year how Trump, who withdrew the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal, how he took little interest in most stuff that he was briefed on, with one major exception, Iran. Quote, Trump almost looked to always took great interest in military and intelligence briefings about Iran, quizzing defense officials about their contingency plans for a war with the country and asking detailed questions about secret operations to counter Tehran in the Middle East. Trump's handling of classified intelligence is a topic of huge concern, given the Justice Department's investigation into hidden White House records at Trump's Florida Beach Club. And while we know quite a bit about Trump's efforts to obstruct officials from receiving, retrieving those documents, the question of what exactly was in those documents, well, that has been more elusive. In August, a team of Washington Post reporters, led by Devlin Barrett, published a bombshell. FBI agents were looking for, among other things, documents related to nuclear weapons. The next month, the Post confirmed that a document relating to a foreign government's nuclear capabilities was indeed found at Mar-a-Lago during the FBI's search. And now today we got another bombshell from Devlin Barrett, again, one that has been since confirmed by NBC News. Here's the headline. Mar-a-Lago classified papers held U.S. secrets about Iran and China. Quote, some of the classified documents recovered by the FBI from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home included highly sensitive intelligence regarding Iran and China, according to people with f- familiar with the matter. If shared with others, the people said such information could expose intelligence gathering methods that the United States wants to keep hidden from the world. Why was Trump keeping highly sensitive intelligence about Iran and China at Mar-a-Lago? Why take those classified White House records all the way to Palm Beach? The Post adds this chilling detail, not confirmed by NBC News. At least one of the documents seized by the FBI describes Iran's missile program. And some of these documents are, quote, considered among the most sensitive the FBI has recovered to date in its investigation of Trump. The former president put out a statement today calling the investigation a document hoax and adding at the end, quote, Who knows what NARA and the FBI plant into documents or subtract from documents? We will never know, will we? We're not talking about Trump taking home some innocent memorabilia here. We're talking about documents relating to Iran's missile program, which the U.S. keeps a very close eye on. We're not the only country keeping a very close eye on Iran's missile program. There are a lot of people who might be potentially interested in Iran's nuclear program and its missile program, including its enemies like the Saudis, who are sworn enemies of the Iranis, also the Emiratis, or Iran's allies, like Vladimir Putin, who is currently using Iranian drones to target Kyiv and kill Ukrainian civilians. In other words, this is not just information that the U.S. is interested in. It's a lot of people are interested in it. 
Which brings me back to a few essential questions. Why would Trump remove these from the White House and keep them and deny having them repeatedly? And second, does the sensitivity of these documents, combined with the president's well-documented obstruction, does that all increase the chances that the DOJ will seek to prosecute the former president? Joining us now is the reporter who broke this story, Devlin Barrett, who covers national security and law enforcement for The Washington Post. Devlin, thanks for joining us tonight. Can I first ask you about the timing on all of this? Do we have a sense of where in the back and forth between Trump and the DOJ these documents first came to light? Was it the first tranche, the second tranche or the third time the FBI went to Mar-a-Lago? So there are still blanks in the specifics of that. But what I can tell you is that some of these most sensitive documents were recovered in the search on August 8th. And one of the ways in which that complicated this investigation was that the investigators who were working this case initially could were not authorized to read some of the very documents that they were they were investigating. And they had to get special clearances because some of this stuff was so uh, restricted that only a cabinet level or near cabinet level official could authorize anyone else in the government to review it. I'm I'm sort of focused on the timing here because the DOJ had been and NARA had been asking Trump for uh, the return of all these White House documents. And at points in the course of the last year, Trump had gone through these documents purportedly himself and given back at each stage what he said was everything. Can we assume that Donald Trump knew he was in possession of these documents by the time they were returned to the DOJ? Well, that's one of the key questions that investigators are working to put together all the pieces of. Obviously, Trump has issued a lot of denials um, in, in a lot of different directions, frankly. And so one of the things investigators are trying to put together is what did he know and what did he do as the government demands for this information became more and more urgent. Did the FBI, do you have a sense of whether the FBI knew these documents were missing? I mean, I think one of the most infamous pieces of information we've gotten all in all of this are the empty classified and top secret folders. Do we have a sense that this is one of the documents from those empty folders? Did the FBI actually know that some important information was missing or did they only find out about it once they got it back from Mar-a-Lago? I'm told that they did not know. It's not, you know, like a library book checkout system uh, when it comes to the president of the United States. And so it, it was when they first got when they first executed the search and when they first went through it, they were seeing these things essentially for the first time. You know, when they send the first subpoena that lists just a bunch of different categories, pretty much every major category of classified intelligence, because they're trying to cover the entire universe of classified intelligence, including markings for nuclear weapons documents. And so you can see from that that they're casting a very wide net because they're really unsure of what's there. Devlin, to the degree that you can talk about this and know, what was the nature of this classified material? Can you give us a any sense of what we're, what we're, the category of information we're talking about here? So I, I think what's notable is that a bunch of these documents described uh, intelligence gathering activities aimed at China. And that's important for a couple of reasons. One, that's some of the most secretive um, work the intelligence, the U.S. intelligence community does. And it's some of the most difficult work. If you remember, 
there have been in recent years uh, instances where the U.S.'s uh, network of informants of, of, of people who helped them in China were, were sort of pulled apart and, and taken down. And so that, that area is a very difficult area to gather intelligence in. So the notion that this type of secret government secret was sitting in a in a you know in a basement or in an office you know far away from the lock and key secure government facilities where it's supposed to be is very alarming to officials. Yeah, we just pulled up the headline from well there was one piece in about 2010 and then there was one more recently but effectively I mean the Chinese I believe systematically dismantled CIA spying operations and when we say systematically dismantled we're talking about killing or imprisoning I think the estimate is more than a dozen sources over 2 years. That's all especially relevant given China's importance in the geopolitical landscape. In terms of the Iranian information, we mentioned nuclear capabilities, missile systems. I was speaking with a former national security official who suggested the missile systems are important because if Iran is trying to put a nuclear warhead on a ballistic missile, people need to know about that and people will want to know about it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I think I, I think what, everything you said is right. I, I do want to be clear. Um, while we have reported the, the the nuclear detail and the missile document that we've talked about, I actually don't know yet whether those are the same thing. Whether we're talking about the same thing, I have not been able to figure out yet. When we talk about that military defenses document, are we talking about Iran? Are we talking about China? Are we talking about some other country? We're still working on on reporting that out. But obviously, to your point. Everything about the Iran missile program is sensitive and fraught and has major implications, both for security and diplomacy. Is there a working theory for why Trump had all of this? You you know, I think that is still a question that investigators are trying very hard to answer. I I think one of the things that is sort of amazing about this entire process is there's a universe in which if all of this stuff had been returned when asked, um, or even if all this stuff had been returned when demanded by subpoena, uh, we really wouldn't be here. Uh, we really wouldn't be necessarily at a criminal investigative stage right now. Um, so I think it's hard to to look inside someone's heart necessarily and know exactly what they want and what they think. Um, but it's a major question, and, and it's a very important one for investigators to try to answer. Well, and presumably they might be able to look into more than Trump's heart. Perhaps there is some kind of communication that exists somewhere of that course. explains what exactly he was doing squirreling away Chinese and Iranian intelligence at his beach club. Do you think the sensitivity of these documents combined with the uh, obstruction in plain view increases the likelihood that the DOJ is going to serve an indictment here? So to that question, I spoke to a a very senior former Justice Department lawyer today who said this is the sensitivity, the extreme sensitivity of these documents is exactly the kind of thing that would be considered an aggravating factor to prosecutors considering a charge, meaning it counts against him. It is a mark against him if, as they consider whether to file charges in this case. Devlin Barrett, scoops galore, bombshells galore, reporter at the Washington Post covering national security and law enforcement. Thank you for making the time tonight, Devlin. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the great reporting. Thanks for having me. We have a lot more to get to tonight. With the midterm elections literally weeks away, what should we expect from Republican election officials who have to run a fair vote, but also stay loyal to their party's election conspiracists? 
And Donald Trump's ally, former aide Steve Bannon, has been sentenced to prison for defying a subpoena from the January 6th committee. Now that the committee has subpoenaed the former president for his testimony, will Donald Trump face the same fate? Congressman Jamie Raskin, a member of that committee, joins me coming up next. Stay with us. Okay, here's how it starts. Quote, Dear President Trump, United States House of Representatives Resolution 503 instructs the select committee to investigate the facts, circumstances, and causes of the January 6th attack and issues relating to the peaceful transfer of power. We have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff, that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power. The January 6th committee has now made good on its promise to officially subpoena former President Trump for his role in the January 6th attack. And the subpoena does not pull any punches. It goes on to tell the former president, you were at the center of the first and only effort by any U.S. president to overturn an election and obstruct the peaceful transition of power, ultimately culminating in a bloody attack on our own capital and on the Congress itself. The evidence demonstrates that you knew this activity was illegal and unconstitutional and also knew that your assertions of fraud were false. But to be clear, even if you now claim that you actually believed your own false election claims, that is not a defense. Your sub subjective belief could not render this conduct justified, excusable, or legal. In its subpoena, the committee has set a date for when they want Trump to appear, and it is November 14th, less than three weeks from today and just six days after the midterm elections. They've also ordered Trump to turn over a wide array of documents by November 4th, which is just four days before the midterms. Trump's lawyers responded to a request for comment by NBC News, saying in part, as with any similar matter, we will review and analyze it and will respond as appropriate to this unprecedented action. There is a lot to unpack here, and we have just the person to ask. Joining us now is Maryland Congressman and member of the January 6th Committee, Jamie Raskin. Congressman, thanks for making the time to be here tonight. Let me first just get started and, and ask you a question. I think a lot of folks are wondering, how did you decide on the timing? The, the I believe the first part of this, the documents are called for before the elections, November 4th, and testimony is afterwards, November 14th. Can you enlighten us as to how you chose those dates? Uh, well, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I imagine that, you know, each member of the committee had his or her own reasons for going along with, you know, these dates. But uh, November 4th uh, gives the former president certainly enough time to gather all of the documentary evidence we're looking for, which is clearly in his possession. He's clearly somebody who knows how to uh, store documents and uh, this would give him a chance to turn them in and then it would give us a chance to go through those documents and prepare for our questioning 10 days later. I think uh, I support that timing because um, we want to make it clear that this is not about getting him in to testify right before the election. Right after the election uh, is just great and we don't want to get caught up in the politics of that. But of course, we need to act swiftly because we're nearing the end of this Congress. And at that point, 
you know, it's like uh, Cinderella's uh, gown. Um, we, we lose our authority when this Congress is over. Are you do you expect that he's going to come testify? I mean, the reports are that he'll say he'll testify if he can do so live. There are reports that the committee's considering that. I mean, we have been down this road before where right. Donald Trump says, oh, I will absolutely. Oh, yes, sure. I'll testify, a.k.a. the Mueller uh, saga. And it never happens. What is your what's your over under on him actually testifying before the committee? Well, I mean, one of the pathologies of our time is that before we even look at what a reasonable law abiding former president would do, we immediately get pulled into Donald Trump's psyche. Um, And, you know, I I hesitate to go there. Uh, But I will tell you that we've talked to more than a thousand people. The overwhelming majority of people we've called, including members of uh, former President Trump's cabinet, members of his innermost White House staff, members of his family have come forward to tell us the truth um, uh, and to talk to the committee either informally or uh, mostly under oath. And um, the idea that somebody would ascend to the highest office in the land, president of the United States, and then refuse to testify about the worst domestic violent insurrection and attack on the U.S. Capitol in our history is astounding. Um, One would think that he would uh, respect the rule of law enough to come in. One would think that he would understand it's a patriotic duty to do so. And at the very least, somebody who's willing to send other people into battle to stop the steal on the patently false grounds that the election was stolen certainly should not be so much of a snowflake as not even to come forward to state his own rationale for why he did that and why he continues to claim against all the evidence um, that uh, the election was stolen from him. I think if you keep calling him a snowflake, that will increase that may increase your chances that he'll show up. But I do want to ask you some fairly detailed questions about the schedule that is part of the subpoena, because I I found a lot of interesting information in there. And I'd love if you could expand on it or offer any further intel as you have it. Um, in the request for documents that you're asking for from President Trump, you, you repeatedly mentioned the encrypted messaging platform Signal. Do you have reason to believe the president or his aides were communicating about the January 6th insurrection on Signal? Um, you know, I can't get into that, that particular question in any more detail. We're interested in any communications platform that was being used. And certainly that was one of multiple platforms being used by various people, you know, in and around the White House. What about in items one, two and four? The committee stipulates that it wants communications where Trump joined as an active or a passive participant. Is there a suspicion that Trump was on calls about election fraud, but did not reveal himself? Is that what we can infer from that? Um, Well, remember, we're we're looking for information here. We're not providing information. Um, But uh, it stands to reason that someone who was centrally and intimately engaged in this whole sequence of events at some points would be speaking and giving orders at other points would be listening and passively receiving information as Donald Trump was for a lot of the day on January 6th, as he simply watched, fascinated and gripped 
by the unfolding violence at the Capitol and doing nothing, not calling any military or national security official or National Guard or Metropolitan Police or Capitol Police. Um, you know, once he set these events into motion, at that point, he was just a, a gleeful observer of what was taking place. Well, and given our dearth of information in terms of White House phone logs during the insurrection, one wonders whether he was a passive participant on other people's phone calls. But I will let that matter lie for a second and ask you about a subject that I think has intrigued a lot of people. And by intrigued, I mean disturbed, which is the role of the Secret Service in all of this. In item 16, the committee asks for all documents involving contacts with or efforts to contact witnesses who appeared or were expected to appear before the committee, including White House staff, staff for your 2020 campaign, and who current served or currently serve in the United States Secret Service. The documents include any communications regarding directly or indirectly paying the legal fees for such witnesses or finding, offering, or discussing employment for any such witnesses, and any communications with Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato or any employee of the Secret Service with whom you interacted on January 6, 2021. We know that Trump was trying to prevent staffers like Cassidy Hutchinson from testifying by offering to pay her legal fees. Do you think he may have been making the same offer to Secret Service agents? Do you have anything that you can expand on by way of that? Well, we don't know the complete answers to any of your excellent questions, which is why we're posing them to Donald Trump, who is the person who would have the answers to all of those questions. So, uh, again, we're counting on his good faith, his willingness to abide by the rule of law and the Constitution and to come forward and to testify and to give us everything he knows about each and every one of those questions. But uh, as you were suggesting, um, we believe that there have been uh, various kinds of efforts to influence um, uh, witnesses in different ways in this process. And we want to get to the bottom of all of it. I have to ask you, because his name comes up here and in other uh, citations, Anthony Ornato, Tony Ornato, he, his role both as a Secret Service agent and as a member of Trump's White House staff. Why has he not been compelled to testify before the committee again? Um, again, I can't get into the specifics of uh, individual witnesses, but I will tell you, generally speaking, that um, a number of the actions undertaken by the Secret Service have raised serious suspicions uh, on the part of different members of the committee. Um, and we intend to get to the bottom of that. That's a matter of utmost gravity. The Secret Service demands complete professionalism and uh, not uh, political loyalty to a particular individual. It is to operate uh, as a, a professional uh, the office within the federal government of the United States and not as a Praetorian guard uh, surrounding this or that political figure. Congressman Raskin, thank you for letting me ask you a lot of questions that you cannot divulge the answers to. We sincerely appreciate your time and thoughts this evening. Well, we're all looking for the answers. Thanks for having we me. We certainly are. We have much more ahead tonight as we wait to see if Trump will comply with the January 6th committee subpoena. His ally, Steve Bannon, faces prison time for failing to comply with his own subpoena. Despite that, Steve Bannon is focused on the upcoming midterm elections, pushing a strategy that may very well push election workers over the edge. All of that is coming up. Stay with us.
months in prison and a $6,500 fine. That is what longtime Trump advisor Steve Bannon was sentenced to today after refusing to cooperate with the subpoena from the January 6th committee last year. Even without his testimony, the January 6th committee has been able to prove just how in the know Bannon was about Trump's plan to claim the election was stolen even before it happened. This was from the month before the election in 2020. He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in May. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. Now, if you thought a coming jail term and widespread public shame would cow Steve Bannon, then you don't know Steve Bannon, because this is what he had to say right after his sentencing today. On November 8th, the American people will raise judgment and we will groom the Biden administration ends on the eighth evening of the 8th of November. Steve Bannon has moved on from 2020 election fraud and is now focused on 2022 election fraud. And this time, it doesn't just seem like he is in the know about some larger plan. It appears he's shaping it. This is Arizona Tea Party activist Daniel Schultz on Bannon's show last year. For more than a decade, Schultz has been preaching what he calls the precinct strategy, but it's never really taken off. Bannon plucked Schultz and his precinct strategy out of obscurity, having him on his show over and over again. The precinct strategy is pretty simple. The idea is to get as many election deniers as possible to become the worker bees of the American election system, precinct officers. Basically, take election deniers and make them election administrators. Last year, after Bannon started promoting this strategy, ProPublica contacted Republican leaders in 65 counties in key states. 41 of them reported an unusual increase in signups since Bannon's campaign began. Check out Maricopa County in Arizona. The red line here is Republicans signing up to be precinct committee members. And you can see a huge surge right after Steve Bannon made a call to action. That's all while Democratic signups basically stay flat. But don't worry, if you are a 2020 election denier who doesn't want to actually administer elections, Bannon has also been promoting another way to get involved. This is Cleta Mitchell, one of former President Trump's lawyers in his effort to overturn the 2020 election. She appeared on Bannon's War Room program this week, and Bannon has had her on a lot to promote and recruit for what Mitchell is describing as a citizen's detective agency. You can leave your magnifying glass at home, though. Mitchell claims to have trained more than 20,000 people in election law so they can observe, document, and report whatever they believe is fraud. As Bannon puts it, the plan is to, quote, adjudicate every battle. So an army of election-denying poll workers plus an army of election-denying poll watchers. What could go wrong? Earlier this week, I sat down with one of the people who will have to deal with all of this firsthand. His name is Don Millis, and he is the Republican chair of the Bipartisan Election Commission in the battleground state of Wisconsin. Don Millis was appointed to that position after his predecessor abruptly resigned earlier this year, citing the avalanche of criticism he got for simply stating that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Needless to say, Don Millis has his work cut out for him. Election day is less than a month out. And it sounds like you're expecting a record number of election observers. Yes, I think that's true. Both parties, my understanding is 
We'll have a record number of election observers, and we'll probably have a record number of partisan-affiliated poll workers. What could go wrong? I mean, no. well, what, how do you feel about that? Is well, that- I think I think it's a good idea, good thing to have observers. Um, I, I know I know many of the people who are organizing this. I have respect for them. I think that they're that they understand that. Um, Having problems at the polls is not going to benefit anyone. Yeah. So I, I can't count, I can't speak for everyone. I can't tell you that there won't be problems. But I do think that having more observers is probably a good thing. Sunlight's always good. Why do you think people think there are problems? Since 2016, the confidence in results have have uh, diminished. 2016, when I was on the commission the last time, I was sued along with my other commissioners by Jill Stein claiming that the election was not secure, that there were uh, that there was tampering with uh, the tabulating machines and things like that. That was rejected by the courts. Um, outside of Wisconsin in 2018, you had uh, Stacey Abrams challenging the result there, and obviously Donald Trump challenging the result in 2020. And so the, the, you, I think on both sides, you have a great deal of skepticism as to the legitimacy of elections at a time in which we have the ability to have the safest and um, the elections to have the most confidence. So it is frustrating, but I think it's I think it's been primarily a function of external forces. I mean, we were talking with some of the experts that worked on the um, elections um, committee to over do an overhaul or sort of get an overview of security in, in terms of Wisconsin elections, and they said it's asymmetrical. There's not even a question which party is fueling this, and it's the Republican Party. It's Donald Trump, and it's a slate of candidates that appear on races across the country who are saying that elections can be fraudulent. You have a gubernatorial candidate in Arizona who's already saying that the election may be stolen. You have the Stop the Steal movement. You had the events of January 6th. Do you really think it's both sides that are contributing to this? Well, I think historically, again, if you want to talk about what's going on right now, sure. certainly the Republicans have been um, making more noise about it. But again, I look at this with a historical perspective. Sure. You go back six years, it wasn't the Republicans, it was the Democrats who were saying that. And again, um, I think that People, you think, just to be clear, you think you think Hillary Clinton is comparable to what the, the, the stop the steal move? I didn't Sorry, say, which which uh, which maybe could you just clarify when you say six years ago? Okay, so six years ago, I'm saying that there were many people on the left who believed that Hillary Clinton was a legitimate winner of the election, mm-hmm. and in 2020, certainly Donald Trump and many Republicans believed that he was a legitimate winner. I'm not saying that you can uh, equate everything that's gone on in either sides. I'm just saying is that. From both sides, at all ends of the political spectrum, there has been skepticism, probably unhealthy skepticism, about the legitimacy of elections. I know right now, I think most of the skepticism comes from the Republican or the conservative side. And I wouldn't, I guess I, Republican, the Republican Party involves people from a wide variety of views. And certainly, um, you certainly have greater skepticism among Republicans about the legitimacy of the 2020 election than you do of people who are independents or Democrats. That's what the polls show, for sure. More of my interview with Wisconsin Election Commission Chair Don Millis up next. I asked him who he thinks won the 2020 presidential election. Stay with us for his answer. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution this week published a bunch of texts they obtained from former Georgia Republican Senator Kelly Leffler's iPhone. Included was this message from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene to Leffler on December 2nd, 2020. Hey, I need to talk with you about a plan we are developing on how to vote on the Electoral College votes on January 6th. I need a senator. Hey, we're workshopping a plan to subvert democracy. Call me. 
Leffler was under pressure to not accept the results of the election, to go along with Trump's big lie that actually he won. Leffler eventually announced that she would challenge the results, but then decided to withdraw her objection after a mob attacked the Capitol on January 6th. But those texts make clear that after the 2020 vote, Republican election officials everywhere, Republicans everywhere, had a choice to make. Go along with Trump's lies or set the record straight. Accept that Joe Biden won. Accept the electoral count. Certify the election. And amazingly, awfully, that pressure, that decision has not gone away. And Republican election officials who are not election deniers, the ones who are still in office at least, they are today forced to occupy this strange in-between space where they play footsie with conspiracy theories but don't fully endorse them. And man, it is exhausting and sort of impossible. At least that's what I gathered as I continue to speak with Republican Wisconsin Elections Commission Chair Don Millis. The president got recounts in, sure. in, in states across the country. Mm-hmm. There, were, there was litigation in court. Mm-hmm. No fraud was found. And yet to this day, he and members of the party say the election is stolen. The bid for transparency is inevitably a good thing, right, for democracy. Sure. But in terms of stanching these cries that the elections were stolen, that somehow the system is rigged, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Well, I think we could do a better job. I'm talking about uh, election officials generally, yeah. about showing what we've done to make sure that the elections are are fair and open and honest. I can't account for every conspiracy theory out there. And again, we have a social media and an internet that allows for unsubstantiated claims mm-hmm. about, about Infermectin, about COVID cures, about you know things to make your hair look better. I mean, there's, 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 you can't stop some of the conspiracy theories, but we can certainly go out there and provide more information and uncover uh, some of these which you can call them hoaxes. You can call them uh, claims that have uh, not much substance behind them. It's not just stuff floating on the internet. It's part of a concerted campaign to delegitimize election results that certain candidates don't like. It is more coordinated and it's more of an explicit strategy than just, you know, sort of paid for ads on websites. And a lot of it is coming from the right wing. As a Republican who's in charge of the election, who's a chair of the Elections Commission, does it frustrate you that you are tasked with solving problems in large part created by members of your own party? Well, um, I, I get frustrated when uh, people, before the election occurs, will go out and pronounce, well, if I don't win, yes. it's been right. I mean, I'm willing to, to entertain any complaint that, that is, has some evidence behind it. I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer. Let's see the evidence. Let's see the documents. That's what drives me. That's what... That's how we resolve differences. That's how courts resolve differences. And so that's why I think you've seen the courts have not, um, it didn't sanction any of the complaints that were filed in yeah. 2020. Uh, Wisconsin, our Supreme Court, didn't, uh, they denied President Trump's uh, claims here. Now, have, were there problems with the 2020 election? I think there what, were do you th- what do you think the problems were? Why even say there were problems with the 2020 election if you yourself don't actually think they're that problematic? Well, I guess. Uh, what I meant by problems is there are certainly things that happened that have given fuel to the argument that sure. that the election uh, would have been different. But, you know, as a Republican who's chair of the commission, wouldn't it be better not to even 
suggest, like not even open the door to the idea that there were problems well, in I, don't, I didn't think I did, but if I most, maybe I misspoke. I think when people hear you say there were problems with the 2020 election, that's an opportunity to say, you see, we can't fully co-sign on what well, happened. I mean, well, there are problems on a small scale with every election. Yeah. The issue is, do the problems change right. the result? Right. Okay. And so I don't want to discount the fact that mistakes were made. I mean, I think or at least mistakes, in, at least in the eye of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I mean, I when I came yeah. on the commission in June of this year, every reporter asked me who won in twenty twenty. Yeah, and what did you say? <laughs> I said, We're t- "I want to talk about the future. I don't want to talk about that." But can, but like, can you say who won? Well, I, I mean, the courts have said. I mean, the answer. The answer. Well, who do you think won? Well, you're I mean, the commissioner. Well, again, I I didn't sign the canvas. Um, I will tell you this. I think that it's highly unlikely that uh, Donald Trump had more votes. Even if the even if like say the drop boxes weren't allowed, I think it's. But I mean, I don't. I, I haven't. Again, show me the proof. I haven't seen evidence that there were more ballots cast for Trump than Biden. So, I haven't seen. So does that mean you think Joe Biden won? Well, I have. I'm a. I'm a. I run an administrative agency. I'm bound by what the courts say. The court said he won. He won. That's 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 all I can go on. I don't know. I. I you hear, um, but you know that the way you're saying this is not instilling a great deal of confidence that you believe he won. You know, well, saying, I mean, I, saying I don't know. I mean, I didn't see any evidence. Otherwise, the court say he won, so he won is not the same as saying Joe Biden won the election. Right. Well, which is in in some people's minds like what needs to be said, right. especially to a lot of Republican skeptics. Well, I suppose that's true. You know, this last June I was asked to chair the commission, so yeah. I went back into it. So all I know is what I've learned since I've been on the commission. And I've learned about a lot of different complaints that have been made. Sure. None of those would give rise to it. None of them would, even if they were true, they wouldn't show a difference in the election results. So I, so I don't know how one could argue that Donald Trump actually won. That's, I guess that's the best I can. Do you ever just want to say to Republicans who are out there spouting conspiracy nonsense, cut it out? No, like, I, stop it? I don't think we can. We can satisfy, satisfy some. And the idea is to cut... Um, is to deny the the conspiracy theorists the the fuel the the support. So that, that's again, I'm not sure I'm going to be successful. Sounds Sisyphean to me. It is. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I um, I was paying attention when my predecessor resigned. Yeah. And I remember telling your predecessor him, who said, "Full stop, Joe Biden won the right. election." And I, I I sort of said, I told my wife, you know, I bet they're going to ask me. And and sure enough, they, and and again, I I. I I didn't, let's put it this way, you know, I'm 63 years old. I can try to do something at the end of my career. Maybe it helps. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure, I'm sure some of the Democratic members of the commission maybe don't think it's helping. I don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm trying and, and it's, uh, it's not been enviable. It's interesting. I have, I have gotten my share of calls, but no, I'm but also, like, why do you get that? Why should you have to get that? You know, you shouldn't I, have to get it. No, you, like, why should six year old clerks in should. rural Wisconsin have to take de-escalation training? They, to, they should. You know, I mean, they, they why are have, we here? They, they shouldn't have to do that. And again, um, I, I can't I can't stop every nut from from making threats like that. Uh, we can try to lower the temperature, and that's what we're trying. Do you to think do. the temperature is getting lower? It feels it feels like it's getting well, all warmer. We're 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 what a month? What is it? I can't. Well, twenty five days. Twenty five days. So we're twenty five days from election. The temperature is never going to get lower this time. It, because just because of the rhetoric of the election, um, I think that after the election, I think that you know I'm, I'm hoping that 
uh, you know, the, the, the temperature will go down. And ahead um, of a presidential run? Well, yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things that um, I, I certainly have, I certainly have my certain, I know how I would like the election to, to come out in the fall in 25 days. I do hope that it's not close. What do you worry about when we think about, when you think about November, when you think about 2024? I worry, well, what I care about are candidates who are, who can look at, who can accept defeat. We need people who will accept defeat. Now, if it had been a close election and it was worth a recount, absolutely. And there's no, no reason why a candidate who's lost um, the unofficial, or the unofficial account is, is um, less than 1%. That's the standard in Wisconsin. Um, I have no problem if someone wants to ask for a recount. And that's perfectly fine. That's within their rights. But um, at the end of the day, you have to accept it. And I, I, that goes for people on both sides. And I, I, that's what I think is the most important thing. We need, that's what we need. And if leaders lead that way, I'm not saying everyone will agree, but more people will agree. Election day is just 18 days away. We'll be right back. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced earlier this summer that his election police had rounded up 20 ex-felons for registering to vote or voting while unqualified to have their rights restored because of the nature of their crimes. We talked about this earlier in the week. Many of the people arrested had no idea they couldn't vote. And you could see the confusion over this law. There was some body cam footage of some of the arrests with people asking officers why the state allowed them to vote in the first place. And then there were the arresting officers who could barely explain the charges. Anyway, none of that looked very good for the governor and his election police. And today we got some real legal proof that this whole thing might be backfiring on Ron DeSantis spectacularly. Robert Lee Wood was one of the 20 people arrested in this scheme. And today a Miami judge dismissed Florida's charges against him on jurisdictional grounds. That judge found that in order for the Office of Statewide Prosecution to bring these charges, the possible crime in this case, voting illegally, had to have happened in more than one place in Florida. In other words, the judge ruled that DeSantis's prosecutors got the court system wrong. And it appears a precedent has been set. Mr. Wood's attorney says that he's already shared his motion to dismiss on grounds of jurisdiction with attorneys representing the other 19 people accused of voter fraud. But that vindication comes at a price. The governor's message to ex-felons has been delivered, namely, vote at your peril. And in the end, that's the point. That does it for us tonight. Rachel will be back on Monday. I'll see you again on Tuesday.